Take your Bibles, and if you don't have your Bible, God bless your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. You should have your sword with you. Romans 13. Besides this, verse 11, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We talked this morning about a clear understanding of how Romans 12, 1 and 2, points us to the presentation of our bodies as living sacrifices and challenging us not to conform ourselves to this world. And I mentioned that the bookend on the other side of this section of two chapters is this text right here that I just read, verses 11 to 14. And it forms for us an excellent framing of these two chapters. One, Romans 12, 1 and 2, looking backwards and telling us that we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice because it says, of all the mercies that we've been given. That's what the first phrase of Romans 12, 1 says. And this passage really asking us to look forward as we see the day approaching when the fullness of that day will come and we'll be in glory with our Savior. Paul does this because he's just about to get into a section in chapter 14 and chapter 15 up to verse 13 where he is going to talk to the Roman believers about some very, very important practical elements that they were frankly struggling with in the church at Rome, and that was how they are to relate to each other, especially in chapter 14 and the first part of chapter 15, about how we relate to each other on matters that we would call gray. Not black, not white, but gray. And I think that's going to be great for all of us as we study this together because that is a huge issue in the Christian church and even at the Bible church. How do we relate to one another when we have strong convictions about things we want to do in the Christian life that we are very free to do, but that we also look down on others when they don't do what we do or they do things that we don't approve of and they can't understand why either we don't do them or that we do the things we do and they don't. And so this matter of the gray area of the Christian life, something not prohibited in Scripture, but something not also encouraged by way of a command or an exhortation in Scripture. And I suspect that Paul is talking about loving, as he does in verses 9 to 21 of Romans 12, loving in verses 8, 9, and 10, and then finishing off with this very, very wonderful phrase, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision of the flesh to gratify its desires. What a wonderful way to launch us into chapters 14 and 15 about how we should relate to the Lord and how we should relate to others. So I'm looking forward as we move our way into it. We will not be covering that next Sunday morning because I'm going to be presenting a very special message uh, in honor of uh, Wayne and Carol Mack. And uh, I hope they don't listen to this particular uh, Q&A time, because it's going to be a surprise. And if they do, then it won't be a surprise anymore. But we are going to honor them because they come into town uh, on July 6th, which is the latter part, of course, of this week, which is the very day, I believe, of their 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about 50 years of marriage 
And I met recently also with, with David and Pat Fleming, uh, who are a bit homebound these days because of uh, some injuries and some illnesses that Pat has gone through. And uh, Dr. Zimmick and I visited them uh, last Friday, Friday uh, week, and they too have been married a long, long time. I asked uh, Mr. David, how long have you been married? And I believe he said in November we will have been married 66 years. And I uh, met on the same day with Dr. Winger, and I believe he said uh, if uh, Lib hadn't gone to be with the Lord, they would be married soon. I believe he said 63 years. And so I've been thinking a lot about long marriages, and I've been thinking about those particular marriages, and I want to present a special message next Sunday morning um, called Your Marriage as a Ministry. And we want to do some uh, special affirmations of the Mac as they come back, the Macs, and so I want to be able to present a special message uh, next Lord's Day, and then we'll... We'll come back, I believe, on the 22nd, because on the 15th, I need to be away in Nashville, Tennessee, preaching on Sunday morning for Byron Yon in his church and doing a weekend men's retreat for their church. And so, uh, Lord willing, we'll come back and do part two of this particular message that I preached this morning on the 22nd. So that'll give you a little bit of a a timeline on what we're doing there, and uh, Lord willing, I'll be back. Uh, that evening for us to talk about the truth war. All right? So we want to talk about some of these things related to not just this passage. We may want to even delve into some uh, other ideas of uh, chapter 13. You may want to even reference back to chapter 12. I I want, though, to try to keep it to some of these themes that we've been talking about because it's so good for us to ask questions uh, about recent memory of preaching And I want us to be able to focus on uh, either this morning or the last couple of weeks and try to answer any questions that you may have and try to get some dialogue going uh, so that all of us can learn even from what you have to say regarding some of these very, very important matters of uh, Romans chapter 12 and especially chapter 13. So entertain any questions tonight that you may have. Anybody want to ask a first question? Bob? Uh, There's a mic. We want to try to capture this if we can. I just had a, a simple question. There was a term that you used. I don't know if I'm going to remember the exact term this morning. You used it several times. Something like the sweep of salvation history or something like that. And I just yes. wasn't sure what you meant by it or how you were using it. You used it a number of times. I didn't know if maybe you had defined it and I missed it or it was in a book somewhere that I didn't read or whatever. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I mentioned the term salvation history. I think I mentioned also that in our Western culture, we've become so individualized that we often don't consider what the Bible teaches in a predominant way about the corporate nature of the body of Christ. When we think of salvation, we, also, we often think of salvation as what Christ did for me in saving me, in redeeming me. And of course, because we're the individual, we understand that very well. Uh, we're not always concerned about what's happening out there, and we're of course very concerned about what's happening to us. And uh, we'll hear people say, well, I was saved and 19 so-and-so, and and, uh, the Lord brought me to to faith at that time. And we tend to read our Bibles and pray and grow in Christ as individuals. And, of course, we enjoy fellowship. We're going to be enjoying fellowship tonight. And those are all well and good. And we should, in fact, emphasize those very things. We can understand a little bit more if we're raised in a Christian family, for instance, And in that Christian family, we'll have family worship, we'll have opportunities to learn from our siblings, to learn from our parents about the faith, and it sort of widens us a little bit beyond our individual relationship with the Lord, and that's also well and good. The Bible, however, has a lot to say about our relationship to each other, not only as a local church, which is certainly a heavy emphasis in the Scripture, but also when the Bible talks about both the body of Christ and salvation, it often gives us the sense of what God is doing in the church as He brings the church through all of the things that they need to progress in in the Christian life. And I mentioned this morning that 
a lot of times that little word you is not necessarily always to be seen as the singular you, but the plural you, you the church. And sometimes when we read our Bibles, we're prone to see it as you, meaning me, the individual, when the context of the passage is really talking about you, the church. For instance, uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, and I want to show you something of the flavor of this in Colossians chapter 3. This is, of course, very, very familiar to us, but this would give you a sense of a little bit of what I'm talking about. I didn't read through past verse 10 of Colossians 3 this morning, but if I were to do that, verse 11 says, here, that is, here in the new humanity in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And then here is the implications of our relationship to each other. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against anyone, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive." And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then these two verses, verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now I remember... When I was a new believer, I did not uh, come out of a family that was a Christian family. Uh, I came to Christ later on uh, in my, just as I was heading in my late teen years, my early 20s, and I came to Christ uh, on a college campus. So I didn't really understand anything other than I came to Christ and I had a Bible and it was me, the Lord, and my Bible. And so I just began reading passages like the one I just read. And when I would come across a passage like that, and it would say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And I would read those passages and I would immediately say, okay, Lance, you need to have the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Lance, you need to make sure that you have the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. And as far as that goes, that's okay, because what is true of the church, what is true of the body, should be true of each individual within that body. But because I didn't really understand the corporate dimension of who Paul was talking to, like these Colossians, and I didn't really understand the corporate dynamic of his talking to the church at Colossae, I individualized everything. I made application from these things to my life, and that was good. But I also didn't see always my relationship and my responsibility to others within the body of Christ. I later began to understand that. I later began to go to Grace Community Church when I went out to California, and I began to understand more of our responsibility to my fellow believers. I began to understand more of what Paul was talking to when he was talking to a church, or when he was talking about the church, the body of Christ, localized, of course, always in these these individual ministries. And so, when I read these passages, I began to understand, for instance, when he says in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Who's the your? The Colossians, the church, to which indeed you, you, body of believers, all of you, you were called in one body, one body, the church. And let the word of Christ dwell in you, you church, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, the church's heart. We become so individualized that often we miss the dynamic of the fact that that we as a corporate body of believers are to be presenting ourselves out in the world in such a way 
that they can see what the church is all about. Not just individuals, but the church. That's why when you do something in your own Christian life, whether it's in your family, whether it's here at the church, the the building, the roof and the four walls, or you do something at your workplace or you do something at your school and it's something that the Lord doesn't want you to do and it may have some kind of public consequences where people see you, they see your attitudes, they see what you've done, they see your heart, they see your actions uh, because of what you're doing. It has massive implications for the church, the church, the body of Christ, and especially the Bible Church of Little Rock to which you belong locally here. In other words, you can't just do individual things, both positively and negatively, that doesn't reflect on the body, the church. So when Paul is telling him, the, uh, telling the believers here to let the Word of Christ dwell in them richly, yes, of course, every individual is to do that. But the Word of Christ is to dwell in the Colossian church, just like the Word of Christ is to dwell in the Bible church of Little Rock. That means that when you don't read your Bibles regularly as individual believers, then the church is not going to be as strong as it otherwise could be because the church is made up of each individual part. That's why Paul can say in some texts, when you weep, we weep. When you rejoice, we rejoice. Why? Because we are, and I think I even read it this morning, we are members of one another. So that what you do out there has implications for what happens to all of us. When someone falls, we all hurt. When someone rejoices, we all rejoice. Having said that, the Bible also, as a corollary, talks about salvation in a corporate sense. And that when sometimes you read in your Bible and it's talking about salvation, it's not simply talking about the salvation of an individual person. It's talking about salvation in the sense of what the, what the God of the Bible is doing as He moves the church through periods of history. Or when He moved through the faithful, the remnant, the believers who were a part of the Jewish nation through the Old Testament, through the Old Covenant period. And when God does that, there is at times language that speaks of God moving historically through time. And when that happens, it would be important for us to understand that I can't just individualize that passage and say, well, that relates to me. And I focus upon that, and I don't always see the implications of what God is saying. And I think Romans 13 is a prime example of that, because, for instance, when he says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, salvation is nearer to us. Who's the us? The church, specifically here now, because he's writing to the Romans. But if you turn to other passages, other people he would be writing to, he'd be saying similar things to them. So the us, of course, are the Roman believers, but salvation is nearer to everyone than when we first believed. Salvation is something that God does, not just in a person's life, but God has a plan, and He's enacting that plan, and He's carrying out that plan, and He's going to fulfill that plan. And that plan is going to include ultimately every single person who's been elect from eternity past. And sometimes even in the book of Romans, like for instance in Romans chapter 11, when it talks about until the fullness of the Gentiles. What what does that mean unless it's referring to something that God is doing that's going to perfect a plan salvationally in history? God has a plan that's going to include the salvation of a myriad number of people made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And even in the book of Galatians, it talks about that. And it's going to say, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God has this salvation plan in which He has a certain number of people who will ultimately be saved. We can call them the elect. We can call them the bride. We can call them the church. We can call them believers. We can call them any number of things that the Bible uses to describe them. But it's a group. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. And in salvation, that group 
is thought of at times in a corporate dynamic where God is moving through time, moving through history. And that's why theologians call this particular perspective on salvation, salvation history. It's not just talking about what God is doing in an individual's life. It's what He's doing in the body of Christ or in the whole sweep of what's happening in salvation. All the way back at the beginning of time, all the way through the cross, and then all the way through to eternity. And salvation history is a term that theologians use to talk about this sweeping epoch of time, including very important events in salvation history. I mentioned two of them this morning. The first one, of course, in the Old Testament is the preeminent example, and that is the crossing of the Red Sea. And the second example, of course, which is the preeminent example of the New Testament and even the entire Bible, and that's the cross. And that's what we mean by salvation history. And salvation history is moving inexorably forward. It's not going to change. It's exactly the plan of God. There are a certain number of elect people, both Jew and Gentile, who are going to come into the church. God knows who they are. He's got a plan to save them, to grant them faith and repentance. And when they believe in space and time, just as I did back in 1978-79, then God will continue that plan until the last Jewish person and the last Gentile person comes into the fold. And as they come in, that will trigger the next event in the salvation plan of God, in this salvation historical perspective. Okay? That's what I mean by salvation history. That may not be as familiar to you as a term, but it is a term that speaks in a very significant way that doesn't just talk about who I am in my own individual Christian life. There's a plan of God, and that plan is moving forward, and God is going to enact all of the things in His providence to affect that plan and bring it to fruition. Okay? All right, other questions? Gary? Uh, several weeks ago, I'm, my memories, senior memory, I guess, Um, you talked about being subject to the government aspects of if you're not going to be subject to the government when the government uh, basically takes a stance against the Bible, God's Word. We have a real example of that in in the current situation since the Supreme Court ruling uh, 40-plus years ago. Uh, A friend of mine spent time in prison over his disagreement with the government 20 years ago. The question I have is how should the Christian church, both as a group and as individuals, respond in a more forceful way to bring about a change if there is that possibility? Good question. The first answer that I would give is that I think the answer to that question lies in exactly how firm the particular issue is that someone believes is being directly violated by the government. And there are a myriad of issues socially and morally with which Christians could agree to some level that the government has failed in its duty either to protect, like, for instance, in the Roe versus Wade abortion issue of 1973, failure to protect unborn children, There are other issues, of course. That's the one I assume you'd be referring to. Not all Christians agree, and I mean professing Christians who we would have some level of confidence are genuine believers. Not all Christians agree with how to deal with an issue like that. Some believe it is right for us to work legislatively to change laws. Some would believe that it's right if in fact those laws don't become changed, to uh, protest. Some protest in such a way that they bring it to a higher level, sometimes called civil disobedience. And sometimes people even take matters into their own hands. And as we know of some particular situations, like for instance a medical doctor in the Atlanta area who was gunned down by someone who believed that he was a murderer. And so they took matters into their own hands and said, just as some Old Testament passages 
speak about God's retribution through human intervention. So we're going to do that to stop the slaughter of innocents. Well, obviously, you can see that there are a number of responses to things like that. And I think it's incumbent upon not simply individuals, but the church, each local church, to determine what their response might need to be in matters like that. For instance, if the leadership of a local church believed that we should work toward changing legislation and outlawing certain morally reprehensible deeds... There might be a local church that would say, we actually want to band together and believe that since that legislation uh, avenue is, is not changing, then we need to actually personally oppose. And we want to rally around the personal opposition, including civil disobedience. And we know that several years ago that was done by a group that lobbied hard for some significant changes and protests that resulted in what we call Operation Rescue led by, by a, a man by the name of Terry. And there were a number of churches, even evangelical churches, and even very popular pastors who did, in fact, that very thing. They went against uh, the legislation by actually protesting uh, those laws being enforced, and that law, of course, would allow for abortions to occur. There are some, of course, who've gone even far beyond that. Not all churches are going to come down on that same side of civil disobedience, including the idea, for instance, like Operation Rescue, of laying in front of abortion clinics and interlocking arms and being arrested and then being jailed and some people even being sentenced and then spending time in jail themselves uh, for crimes, Uh, crimes for which they would say are a badge of honor because of our level of protest. Uh, I wasn't here, of course, when that was at its heyday, Uh, I do know that the Operation Rescue movement itself has begun to splinter, and in fact, uh, that particular head of the movement, Mr. Terry, uh, has now converted to Roman Catholicism. And that particular movement had what I would say say were some uh, disturbing elements to how they protested and in what ways they protested, and even in some ways the theology behind They're protesting. I think, for instance, it's absolutely fine, and I would encourage and and have even participated myself in uh, marches, legal, allowed marches, like, for instance, the one that happens every January where there's a march on our own state capitol. There are also some theological questions related to who do we band together with when we protest? Do we band together with other groups and movements and churches, and theologies uh, to protest such movements. There are certain religious groups, denominations, uh, even cults who protest against the evil, say, for instance, of abortion. Should we band together with them? Do we have a common cause with them? Or do we protest on our own? And my answer to that is those are not easy questions Uh, Those are not easy answers, and I think, in my judgment, every local church or if a church is connected with a denomination needs to come to a place where they have their own perspective on the matter based upon how they understand the Scripture. Um, Not having been here during that time, I don't know what or what was not done, but I know for me I've done those things like standing in protest by marching, by lending a hand financially and in other ways for those kinds of things to be overturned, including encouraging others uh, to run for political office. And those are the things that I'm comfortable with on that particular issue. If that were a need to do something more, I know that our church and its leadership would would tend to to try to pray long and hard about what our response might be. Uh, It may not be that it comes with that particular issue, but there may be some things in the future for which we do come together as one church and respond in a a single voice. We'll have to see what happens in the days ahead. I mentioned, I think, in one of the messages that uh, in Canada today, they are very much trying to say that things like hate speech occurs when someone speaks, for instance, against homosexuality uh, from the pulpit, a preacher. Uh, We'll see if that comes. I've received a couple of emails from you 
where it appears as though there's someone trying to push that here in the United States for things like that particular issue. I don't know. We'll have to see if that comes. Okay? Other questions? I think I had somebody else's hand up over there. Uh, In Romans 5, you were talking about, not not Romans, Romans 13. You were talking about uh, putting off the darkness and putting on the armor of light. And then you switched over to 2 Corinthians 5.17, talking about uh, we are a new creation and the old is gone. the old man is gone and the new has come and that we still have the smell of the old. So I have a question. What exactly is the old if the smell of the old can cause us to sin, entice us to sin? If the old is the old sin nature and it's dead, it's not doing anything. If, in fact, some of it is still there, then it's not dead. So I have a problem with exactly what that's talking about. Good question. Turn to Romans chapter 6. You remember I said that Paul indicated that there's an old man and a new man. And you remember I also said that Paul speaks very consistently when he uses the terms that he uses. doesn't mean that he always uses the terms that he does in exactly the same way every time, but when he uses a particular term like old man, new man, he's going to use it even when he uses it in different contexts and even in, case, in some cases in different Bible books, he's going to be very, very consistent with how he uses it. And I believe he does with these two terms, old man, new man. Look at Romans chapter 6, and uh, as you're turning there, I don't think I mentioned 2 Corinthians 5 today. I think Pastor Tim mentioned it in the waters of baptism. But it does talk about new creation. Romans chapter 6 says, verse 4, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And then this very provocative verse, Romans 6, 6, we know that our old, and then again this word self, if you have an English Standard Version, you look down at the bottom and it says Greek, and then it says man, okay? Because it's the word anthropos. There is a word for self in the Greek text of our New Testament, and that's the word fusis, and that's self, but that's not the word that Paul uses. He uses the word anthropos, which, of course, we get the word anthropology from it, the study of man. This is, we know that our old man was, and then what verb tense is that? What's the next word? Okay, crucified. What, what verb tense is that? Past tense. So whatever, whatever he means by it, he's saying that it's past. We know that our old man was crucified with him, that is with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. All right, now one thing we're going to have to do right out of the chute here is try to understand what does he mean by our old man has been crucified, and secondly, for the one who has had that crucified old man brought to him, he's died and he has been set free from sin. How many of of you, when you came to Christ, or even as you've lived your Christian life up to this very point, would raise your hand and say, I am free from sin? Excellent. Thank you, class. That's the right answer because none of us are free from it in its totality. 
All right, but if that's true, if we're not freed from sin in its totality, in what sense then is Paul saying that we are free from it? And this is dialogue. You guys can talk. Okay, penalty. A position. Can't master you anymore. Excellent, Byron. The sense of sin's mastery has been broken. That's what he means by being freed from sin. The mastery of it. It's no longer my Lord. It's no longer my master. It no longer controls me. For the first time in my life, I'm able to say no to sin at times in a way that I was never able to say no to it before. Before, I was enslaved to it. That's why Jesus says in the book of John, every man who sins is what? A slave to sin. Well, how many men sin? All. So how many men are enslaved to sin? All. The only way we are delivered from sin is by the power of Jesus Christ at the cross and our being baptized with Him and our being raised to Him, raised with Him to walk in newness of life. But, he says there, Romans 6, 6, our old man was crucified. Well, if we just did what we did with verse 7, what should we do with verse 6? In what sense was our old man crucified? Was our old man crucified completely, totally, so that there is no vestiges of the old man now? Of course not. So what he means by our old man having been crucified, past tense, is that the status of our relationship with God has changed. Someone used the word position. The position that I have before God has changed. For instance, that's why in Romans chapter 5, it says, now that we have a justification from God, He's declared us righteous, we have peace with God. There's no longer any hostility in our relationship with God. We're not His enemy. He's not our enemy. We have peace with God. Well, if that's true, then I have been crucified in the sense that the old man has been dealt with. Adam is no longer the head of the race of people that I'm included in, that I'm under. Adam is no longer my Lord and my Master. Christ is my Lord and my Master. Right, that's that's whom I am serving now, Robbie. I'm in, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves, leading to right or slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Yes, although you got a little ahead of me. Because we're still trying to figure out, what's this old man then? Because if the old man's been crucified, that means that my status has been dealt with. I've been moved out of the realm of Adam and into the realm of Christ. Then what is this thing in me that still sins? The answer to that question is, I am new in Christ, but I'm not totally new in Christ. You ever thought about that? Why wasn't it? That when I was redeemed, the very moment I was redeemed, why wasn't it that God didn't just usher me immediately into heaven? I mean, wouldn't that have been preferable? Why wasn't it that once I was Christ's own, I am possessed by Christ, why didn't He just translate me immediately into heaven so I could abort this whole middle part that we call the Christian life? Well, the answer to that is that even though my status has changed, God wants to take me through the process we call the Christian life so that I become totally new over time. That's why I read today in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That's what we do in presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a process we call sanctification that ultimately, and by the way, as I mentioned, salvation history, the corporate dimension of the body, we will be presented as corporately a bride, a chaste, pure virgin, presented, according to Ephesians 5, 
to God by Christ as His bride. We're all going to get there. And one day, once the last person is saved, God's redemptive plan takes action in the future. There's going to be a last supper. There's going to be the supper of the Lamb. And we're all going to be presented. All the Christians of all the ages, all the believers of all the ages are going to be one day presented as one to God as the bride of Christ. Corporately, we're all going to be presented as a pure, chaste virgin that Christ is going to present. He gave His life for it. And so, that being the case, once we all come to Christ, we're not so totally redeemed at that point. We have a redemption. That's true. And we are currently being sanctified through the process so that one day we're going to be presented in that manner. What has to happen in the Christian life is that there are vestiges of the old man. There are habits. There are practices. Paul even says it in that text that I read, Romans 13, the works of darkness. Now, I made the the emphasizing point this morning that he doesn't say cast off the darkness, but cast off the works of the darkness. All of us have things that are so ingrained in us from our former manner of life that we have to continually fight to put off from ourselves because it is displeasing to the Lord. Think right now of the habits that you grapple with in your own personal life right now. Just think of those habits. Think of those things that you say, oh, I don't like that about myself. I know that's displeasing to the Lord. I know that He doesn't want me to do that. The writer to Hebrews calls it besetting sins. Those are the things that Christ is working on in us so that those vestiges, those habits, those patterns will be eradicated over time. Little by little by little. You say, why isn't it a lot by a lot by a lot? Well, in some ways it is. In some ways in your Christian life you grow in a much greater way, in a quicker way than you do other things. In some of those old established habits and patterns, it takes more time. It takes more effort. Nevertheless, Paul says, the old man has been crucified, the old man has died, but you've got to throw off some of the habits and the patterns that characterized you in that former life. They don't characterize you now. You don't do them ever and always, but you do them enough that they are nagging, and they hurt, and they hinder your growth. They are a blight sometimes on your witness, and you don't like them, and you hate them. And in fact, because the old man has been crucified, when you do them and you hate them to the degree that you hate them, that's yet another evidence of your regeneration. Because you hate them, and you want them to be dealt with, and you know they're ugly, and you know that those things are to be dealt with, and you want that, and you ask for the Spirit's help, and you confess sin, and you seek forgiveness, and you pour over the Word for direction and guidance, and that's the renewing process. That's the process of the new man status. And even though we're not there, the renewing of that status gives me not a totally new condition, but one that I'm striving for, one that I'm aspiring to, and one day, in fact, I will be, along with the corporate body of Christ, the new man in Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, old things have passed away, behold, new things have come, that's, of course, talking about the church. That's talking about believers. And in fact, in Galatians chapter 6, it says, but a new creation. Circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but a new creation. What is that new creation? When we, as a group of people, ascend to the Father by the Son and the Spirit's work to the degree that we're presented as totally new in Christ. Do we look totally new right now? Do we act totally new right now? No. But it is true that we are new nonetheless. The old man, old status, and sometimes I do the old things. New man, I'm new in Christ, and sometimes I put away those old things and I present to God new ways of thinking. Have you ever had it where someone has not seen you for a long, long time 
and they talk to you, maybe even after some years, and as they interact with you and they spend time with you, they say something like, say something like this, my, you've changed and it is wonderful. You've grown. You've really matured. And you know, you walk away from that and say, Lord, something is going on inside. You are doing something. This is, this is great. That's a great encouragement. Well, that's because we're being renewed. We're not totally new, but we are being renewed. And with regard to the old man, we could say it like this. Sin does not now reign, R-E-I-G-N. Sin does not now reign, but sin remains. And you say, what's that thing that I keep fighting? What is that thing? Paul calls it various things. Even in our own text of Romans 13, 14, which we'll get to, Lord willing, on the 22nd, he says, he says but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the new, right? The, the, the renewing process. Make no provision for the, and then what's the word to use? Flesh. Now you've got to watch it, because sometimes that word sarks, it, it, it doesn't always mean the sinful part of, of humanity. Sometimes it means just our humanness, our humanity. We're just tied to this earth. But sometimes, and in fact, in dimensions where it's talking about sin, it's talking about our sinfulness. The way I personally like to refer to our sinfulness is something like this. Our remaining sin. Our residual sin. Our indwelling sin. That's the part that remains in a believer who isn't totally new at salvation, but who is being renewed, and that indwelling sin is decreasing little by little. What you should have in your Christian life, if you're truly a believer, are two things in this put-off, put-on category. You should have a decreasing frequency of sin and an increasing frequency of righteousness. That's, That's what should characterize you. If it does then you could say about yourself, I'm a part of the new humanity in Christ. He's my Lord. He's the head of this race. He's he's my Savior. He's my Redeemer. And He's changing me through the Spirit and by the Word. If you do not have a decreasing frequency of sin and an increasing frequency of righteousness, then it is true of you that you're still a part of the old man. The reason why I don't like the translations that say self, and, and most of them do, is because as soon as you use the word self, what do you think of? Yourself. You think of this this concept of, and and this is where I think we get wrong. The concept is, well, I've got a I've got an old man part of me, and I got a new man part of me. And at any one point, the old man is predominant, and at some other point, the new man is predominant. The old self, the new self. And it almost sounds like there are two warring personalities inside the same person. And someone says, well, it certainly seems like that to me. Certainly sounds like that with Paul, Romans 7. I do the things I don't want to do and the things I do I, do, I, uh, I, I don't want. Here's, here's the answer to that. Don't use self, use man, because that's the way Paul uses it. He uses it consistently every single time. And when he uses it, he's talking about old humanity, new humanity. Old race, new race. He's talking not simply about this warring faction in my my own individual self. He's talking about corporate dimensions with individual implications of those corporate dimensions, including ourselves as individuals. What I don't like about this concept of new self, old self is this. You've sometimes heard teaching that says... Well, it's the white dog, black dog. How many of you heard that, that teaching? Several hands go up. They say, you're, you're victorious in the Christian life, you're doing well in the Christian life when the white dog is winning. And you're not doing so well in the Christian life when the black dog is winning. So what you need to do is feed the white dog and starve the black dog. Well, I, I certainly understand what that means, and I certainly think that in some ways, in some measure, that could be helpful. But in another sense, if you think that that's two men warring inside your body, old man, new man, old self, new self, that's not really what the Bible teaches. And because that's not really what the Bible teaches, I'm hesitant to use illustrations and analogies like that because it can lead us astray in terms of the truth of what the Bible really teaches. 
That's why I love Galatians 6 when it says circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but a new creation. That's talking about us, folks. We are new creation. We are having old things passed away. Old man has been crucified. New things have come. What a, what a great truth that I have, even though I have sin remaining in me, I have sin that doesn't reign over me. What a great truth. I can, for the first time in my life, say no to sin in the power of the Spirit and according to the Word. I couldn't do that before. Why? Because I had a master over me. Now, I can say yes to Christ, yes to righteousness, and no to sin, and no to Satan. Do I always do that? Of course not. Do I aspire to that? Yes. And when I do, praise be to God. The Spirit's working in me. The people of God are holding me accountable. The Word of God is powerful to me. That's what I think the old man is. That's what I think the new man is. And that's what I think it is to battle sin. And why it's not necessarily helpful to talk about two personalities as though they're warring inside the same body. It's just us, folks. I've, I've even heard teaching where people would say, well, it wasn't me that sinned, it was my flesh. And I, and I asked the question, well, where is that? And who is that? Uh, you didn't sin? No, no, it was my flesh. My flesh did it. So you didn't do it. I mean, I've actually counseled people who've been under that form of teaching, and we've gone round about, and I said, so, so you weren't the sinner who sinned the sin at that point. No, no, it, it, was, it was not me. And I said, what, what do you mean? Well, Galatians 2.20, it's not I. It's Christ that lives in me. So if there's anything good in me, it's Christ and not me. And if there's anything bad in me, it's the flesh and not me. Boy, that, that w- I would really struggle if I was reading my Bible and I was reading passages like today when it says, cast off, do this, don't do this. I would say, well, Christ, you do it. I'll let you do it. And then you've got some quietistic, pietistic kind of theology that says let go and let God. That's dangerous. And that yet you've got some other theology that says, well, it's just my flesh doing it. And so I'm not really responsible. My Bible tells me that when you sin, you are responsible. And when you sin, it's you sinning. And when you are obedient, it's you being obedient Not in your own strength, but in the strength that God supplies. But you are being obedient. You are aspiring to obedience and you are obeying. So we've got to be real careful with that kind of teaching. And if we're not, we could get ourselves looking at Paul's terms and not seeing them in the right way. Okay, I think we're right at the end. I'll tell you what, that is a great question, Richard, because so many people have come to the place where they've struggled with this doctrine of indwelling sin And they've moved themselves either out of responsibility or when they respond in obedience, it's responding in a certain way that doesn't sound like what the New Testament teaches. And I want to bring the balance to both sides. So maybe that's helped. All right, Pastor Todd? I heard some stomachs growling a minute ago for ice cream, and I'm just curious if that was the white dog or the black dog (laughs) that was... Answer? I think we're done for this evening. (laughs) All right, have great fellowship.